Hey guys, it's Adam Rappaport, and you are listening to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. Uh, this week, in light of the nationwide conversation going on about sexual harassment and assault, we felt that it was important to devote an episode to the topic, uh, specifically how it affects the restaurant industry. So, Carl Lolly Music, our food director, who spent a decade working in restaurants, is joined by New York Times staff reporter Julia Moskin, as well as Genevieve Lamora, co-owner and general manager of the excellent Filipino restaurant Bad Saint in Washington, D.C. They discuss the problematic gender, operational, and power dynamics that are deeply embedded in restaurant culture and ways to change and improve the industry for the better. All right, here is Carla, Julia, and Genevieve. Thank you, Genevieve and Julia, for being here today. Uh, We are here to talk about the culture of restaurants, especially female employees working in kitchens and restaurants, not only in kitchens, but also as servers and managers. Um, Really just want to get into the topic in light of all of the scandals that have rocked, it seems like every industry that there is from public radio to the highest levels of government and everything in between, it seems like we are in the midst of this major movement that is funny to even say started with Harvey Weinstein because it started just so much longer ago than that. Um, So just bringing in awareness to the restaurants that we as members of the media cover and celebrate and love, but also now have to cover this very uncomfortable topic, which is that chefs have behaved really badly. Women have a lot of terrible stories to tell. And how do we reckon that with everything that we think about food and hospitality? Julia, as someone who has written a lot about food and also covered Ken Friedman's downfall in particular and also most recently between Ken and Mario Batali, um, men behaving very, very badly. I wonder if, from your perspective, if there is something about restaurant culture that has made this inherently possible to go on for so long, or is this a couple of bad dudes who would have done bad things wherever they were employed. There's been a lot of talk about how restaurant culture is uniquely suited to creating workplaces where sexual harassment is rife. You could actually say that about a lot of kinds of workplaces, like including movie sets and casting couches and all of that. It is very much... um, you know, in terms of who is deemed to be successful, who is deemed to be popular, there is a really complicated um, and often really superficial uh, aspect. Um, I was mainly reporting on the front of the house, so there was a lot of talk about how only the most beautiful women were allowed to work at the Spotted Pig, and only good-looking men were hired, and even if they were too good-looking, usually Ken Friedman found a reason to get rid of them one way or another. Um, That was a thread throughout. One of our sources, um, who was great, who said that she actually loved what she called the late night grab ass aspect. She said it very well, and it was a brave thing to say because she kind of said like, I like that. But she also made it very clear that there's a difference between, you know, being playful Mm -hmm. and being humiliated. Right. And also, in terms of Ken Friedman, one of the reasons that that is the story that we did at the Spotted Pig is because he's not 
by any means the worst behaving person in the restaurant industry. But in terms of creating a workplace situation, which is what sexual harassment is classically categorized as when you're talking about equal opportunity, human rights violations, creating a hostile workplace. Right. Um, and, and that's, uh, I think you brought up a couple of things that I want to follow up on. One being, um, there was a line in the, in the story, and I think this is what, where, what, what, you, what you just captured, but I'm just going to read from the article. Uh, Even by the loose standards of the hospitality business, where rowdy drinking sessions after shifts and playful sexual banter are part of the culture, employees describe Mr. Friedman's restaurants as unusually sexualized and coercive. So I'm actually really interested in the first part of that sentence, which is that it is a given in the hospitality business that rowdy drinking and playful sexual banter (laughs) come with the job. And I I don't disagree. Um, So I just to give a little background on myself, I also started my career in food working in restaurants. And I worked at Montrachet Restaurant in Tribeca in the early 2000s. Um, I was uh, kind of amazingly one of three women um, in the kitchen, one other line cook and the and a pastry chef, but it was it was a kitchen the size of this room, so we were all sort of face to face and had a classically, you know, the screaming French chef who I learned so much every day from, but he would there was no one who he wouldn't um, scream at and you know no one was sort of like immune from his wrath right it just depended on the day you kind of bounce back and forth between oh it's so cute she's a girl she can't reach things let me get the heavy thing for you and wanting to prove that I can get it myself I can do it myself even if it means I have to stand on the counter to get it but beyond that it was a co-ed changing area you can't even call it a locker room it was like a area in the back between two walls um, and it was just expected that we would change in and out of our of our chef whites at the end at beginning and end of a shift like butt to butt with all the other people in the kitchen so on a daily basis I was taking my clothes off in front of co-workers if I had asked like I don't think women should have to change here can we have a pre-? you know it would have been showing that like I couldn't hang and I knew that then, and so I just sucked it up. And if guys were gross, you would just tell them that they were being gross, and like that was, that was life. With restaurant culture, you can say yes, you know, people in very close quarters, and it's really hot, and it's really stressful, and it just gets very intense. But in terms of the business aspect of it, in term and what is um, uh, encouraging these kinds of toxic relationships is that lack of structure. You know, restaurants in many ways are not businesses in any kind of classical sense, and chefs are not business owners. Um, They become famous for many reasons, and they acquire investors for many reasons, but it's rarely for their business acumen. Mm -hmm. There is very rarely a sense of like a structure. Benefits are still rare. You know, there are certainly organizations that are trying to counter that. And as there are more and more of these large hospitality groups like Danny Myers, Union Square Hospitality Group, and Andrew Carmelini, and some chefs who really want to impose that kind of structure. Sure. But that's a very, very small, rarefied minority. So Genevieve, as a business owner at Bad Saint in D.C., you own a restaurant with a male partner, and you guys have a chef who is actually part and parcel with the restaurant but works for you, Mm -hmm. in a sense, as Mm -hmm. like being a business owner. And 
the kind of restaurant you have is like very familial and small Mm -hmm. and a tight knit group. Mm -hmm. So speaking from that perspective, did you think about how not only your guests were going to be treated, but how much did you think about what kind of an employee employer relationship you wanted to have? I think my perspective as a business owner and as a woman of color business owner was really um, critically and decisively shaped by actually my experience working in nonprofit organizations. So I came to restaurants via a very higgledy-piggledy path and um, spent about a decade working in different nonprofit organizations. My first job out of college was working at a women's rape crisis center and I served on a board of an Asian American domestic violence direct service organization in DC. So I think those were all experiences that probably a lot of restaurant owners don't have. Mm-hmm. And given my past dealing with similar issues of sexual harassment and sexual assault and violence against women, I think it really pushed me to think very intentionally about what kind of owner I wanted to be and right. what kind of environment I wanted to create. I, I first wanted to agree with something that Julia said earlier in that um, I, I see in a lot of the pieces about um, these issues in the restaurant industry mentioning like it's sort of uniquely suited to mm-hmm. you know a, a relaxation of um, I don't know just norms social norms or, yeah um, but and I could see that to a degree but I also just think that this is everywhere it's you know people picking crops in California and farm workers. It's domestic workers in people's homes. It's childcare providers and people that are in other people's intimate space that get subjected to things. So I don't think that necessarily that we're seeing things happening in restaurants that don't happen in other places. I do think that of a certain generation of restaurateur and male chef that they're rewarded for certain behaviors. And if they're rewarded for them, why would they stop? running their their kitchens and their businesses in a way that's very with, with like a hyper masculinity right like a super alpha male top dog masculinity that is so pervasive and in any organization or business people look to who is at the top for how to behave and what's accepted mm-hmm. and so even if people pay lip service to what they're supposed to be doing or to how people should be behaving or treating their colleagues. Whatever they say, people will look to who's in charge for what actually can pass. Right. I mean, I think I was very fortunate to work in nonprofits where these conversations were part of our day-to-day, thinking about like relation, like power relationships. It's kind of unusual mm-hmm. for like a 21-year-old to be breaking down power relationships um, in society but it was like so related to the work that we were doing in terms of how that translates to the small tiny restaurant that we have in DC um, of course it's easier to manage on a smaller scale but what I tried to do as a business owner and a leader is to make clear to everyone in the restaurant the kind of behavior that I expect and the type of respect that I expect them all to have for each other Mm -hmm. and for me and do you think doing that, obviously your experience in the nonprofit informed it, but when you were working at other restaurants, did you have that moment of thinking like, when I have my own restaurant, it's, I'm not going to do this? I must have like some of the most dumb luck of anyone I've ever known. <laughs> because in all the restaurants where I've worked, they've been small, 
locally owned. Um, two of the places where I've worked, there were women in charge. And so I think that all like shaped what I could see myself doing and also um, gave me an idea of how things could be another way. Working in an environment where, because people are functioning at a very high level, and it's a very participatory, collaborative kind of place. There's a culture of holding people accountable. Mm-hmm. So it's like, why did you run that dish to the wrong table? Why did you drop the glasses when they weren't ready yet for the pairing? Like that's, my peers would say that to me and I would say that to my peers. Mm-hmm. So if we are challenging each other and pushing each other to be excellent in terms of steps of service and hospitality, I feel like that helps create an environment where If someone said something to me that I thought was out of line, I would also say something to them. Right. You know, like it it kind of I think it makes it easier if you create that environment where it's okay for people to speak up and it's expected that you will challenge each other, Mm -hmm. that I will challenge you and you will challenge me. I think it makes it okay for people to say, hey, you know, when this happened, that really wasn't all right with me. Like it really that was really messed up. So this is kind of the opposite of the we chef culture that I experienced in my time in restaurants, which was like, if you disagreed, it really didn't matter. Mm -hmm. Um, And the chef or the sous chef was always right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, also being in a place where, again, as a female cook coming into three star restaurants, um, I did, I think, carry that not chip on my shoulder, but an expectation that like, in order to be successful here, I have to be hardcore. And then of course, going back to the quote from your source in the Ken Friedman story, like that's all fine and good. And I, I, I loved that part of being in restaurants. I loved being a badass and being hardcore and being better than the guys and getting the big heavy pots and like showing that, you know, I didn't need I didn't need help um, and you do you gain a lot of respect from kind of being like that but the question for me is like how do you then find the line in a place where the line from the very beginning is like super fuzzy right so if you have an expectation that like yeah there's no there's no private place to change my clothes and sous chefs are going to say gross stuff when they're coming up behind me with a tray and um, I have to listen to you know, dirty jokes, and then one day you, like, go to the shared computer and there's porn on the screen. Like, all of these things are things that happen to me. So I wonder how employees are supposed to know. And I really do think back and wonder, like, where was our... We had a GM. Like, where... Why was that okay? Well, reporting structures were... Even even in a place that had a GM, usually the GM was someone who was loyal to the chef, you know, not someone who necessarily was a manager who was like separate, um, you know, with separate spheres of influence in the front of the house and the back of the house, right? I mean, there, it's not a checks and balances system. It was always much more a collaboration mm-hmm. and how can we make this problem go away? What is it about restaurants that from the get-go makes it that we don't even think of them as being normal workplaces with the same workplace safeties in in place but it's also what you were saying Genevieve and you've both said how are restaurants different from any other field right now we've seen you know harassment and bullying and silencing going on in 
every industry. So like, is it a restaurant problem? Personally, I do think of restaurants as a professional workplace. I think of it as a workplace. And I think part of why my perspective might be different from someone from an earlier, like an older generation of restaurateur or chef, or someone who's been in the business much longer than me, because I feel like I haven't been in the business that long comparatively, is that I have had, that, that this is my second career. And so I have had other experiences in different other different kinds of workplaces. So I had a standard already of expectation of how people would, are supposed to behave in a workplace. But also for me, while I loved the work that I did, I always kind of felt like it wasn't really the right thing for me. Mm-hmm. And in restaurants, I feel like I did find something that felt like like it was what I was supposed to be doing. And I feel like my work helps me to express like the fullest spectrum of who I am and it uses like the broadest range of my skills mm-hmm. um, I think because I'm like I love this industry I I claim it I found it for myself I think of it as work mm-hmm. and um, and I have that expectation of it being a professional place I also in other in other work experiences not in the restaurant industry I saw places where the leaders ran the organization kind of like a cult of personality, mm-hmm. which I think has some parallels to the restaurant industry with chefs or restaurateurs running the business like a cult of personality, like their own personal playground, like a private men's club. And I think that that time, I'm hoping that what is coming out of it, out of this, is that that time is coming to a close. And I think that part of what will hasten its end is the growth and the the evolution of like another generation of mm-hmm. restaurateurs and another generation of chefs who represent maybe a broader range of life experience mm-hmm. and perspective than what we're used to seeing right. in successful famous chefs and restaurant owners. Do you have systems in place at your restaurant for your servers who um, might, you know, get unwanted attention um, from uh, customers? I think we talk a lot about employees, back of house, chefs doing, you know, doing bad things to their own employees, but being, being a waitress or a bartender in a restaurant you do also get a lot yeah a, a lot of nastiness that you don't necessarily yeah. want and you're working for tips like yeah. do you how do you guys address that this is a conversation we've actually had several times and I feel that it's important to keep repeating it just because I don't want people to think oh well we talked about that nine months ago like is that still mm-hmm. can, is that still cool like is that still the rules now so I like to repeat it over and over and also I feel like it comes up over and over and so I have to keep addressing it. I like to define what our sense of hospitality is. You know, we want people to feel like they're coming into like a family party or we want them to feel like very at ease and relaxed and like they can be themselves and just enjoy the food. The line for me is when guests cross the line Mm -hmm. and that is where it's not a question of hospitality for me anymore. I think because the environment can feel so intimate and cozy and relaxed mm-hmm. that sometimes I, I could see how guests would feel so relaxed that they would want to be inappropriate. But the staff is at work and they're professionals. So I like to make clear to the staff that if there's anyone ever who's making them feel uncomfortable, if anyone has ever made a comment that's over the line, 
come to me right away and I will deal with that person. And you'll take that table over. Yeah. yeah. And I like to have a conversation with with the staff person, whoever it is, like, do you want me to take the table entirely? Do they need to leave the restaurant? Mm-hmm. Um, are you okay? You know, like, I want them to tell me where they are. I step in in the way that we agree on. Right. You know? And I also encourage them to, if they feel comfortable, to say things to the guest if they feel comfortable to do so. And I feel this myself. I think part of what makes it easier for me to is I've experienced this in so many parts of life, like just walking down the street. When I first was working after college, I walked everywhere because I had no money. (laughs) And I encountered so much street harassment. It was insane. Like very racialized street harassment, very like aggressive street harassment, like men coming up to me and touching me. So this is all like very vivid sensory memories for me. These are not memories I want someone else to have. It makes it easy for me to be like, hey, I totally get it. When I was getting street harassed a lot uh, in my 20s, I often had a range of reactions myself. Like sometimes I felt like, oh, hey, I'm not safe enough to talk back to this Mm -hmm. person. There's nobody else on the street. It's really late. I'm alone. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I would be on a very busy street and it'd be daytime and there'd be lots of people around. And then I would feel comfortable confronting a street harasser and cussing them out in the middle of the street. And I want my staff to feel empowered that they can be themselves and they can speak up for themselves if they're comfortable. Mm -hmm. But I know that 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 moment may not always be a comfortable moment for them. And I always like for them to know that the moment it's over the line, just come get me. Right. So I think um, sort of segueing into a conversation about how how can management fix bad management. And I'm hearing Genevieve talk a lot about previous experiences and life experience, but also professional experiences. Do you have to come from that perspective, I guess, to solve these problems? I mean, I would hope not. You have you have two male partners that Mm -hmm. it seems like you didn't have to explain, you know, this to them of Mm -hmm. just treating people with with respect. Mm -hmm. So on the way down here to record today, I was reading a statement that had just come out from the um, Batali Bastianich group, which is said a couple of things. One is that they're going to change their name um, to a different name that I assume is not going to just rely on those two the two names of the guys who started it they sort of allude to that without saying exactly what it's going to be and then I thought that this is this is very telling and like curious to me something I think is worth exploring it says second Nancy and Lydia Bastianich will now take on leadership roles in the company Apart from steering our culinary direction, they are intent on making sure that no one experiences sexual or any force of, form of harassment. Well, great. Like, <laughs> why do you think that people will think that putting the two, you know, elder states women in charge is going to solve this problem? I'm looking to you, Julia. Like, why should we feel now comforted by the fact that two women who have been part of this organization the entire time are now going to be the solution to this problem. Yeah. Something that Kim and I also are reporting on, of course, is Ken Friedman's partner, April Bloomfield, right. um, who is one of the most lauded female chefs in the United States. There is little question that she knew at least some of what's going on, For if sure. not all. Right. I certainly don't want to... S- to throw April or 
Lydia or Nancy under the bus here, which that's happens, what makes it so which, uncomfortable, which happens a lot. But we have to I think the assumption is fair to make since they were in business with these guys for like decades and for both of them, it seems like deep character, you know, not even flaws, but truths about just how they conducted themselves over the years. It's not like you wouldn't know that when you're in business together in restaurants. So let's assume like they're pretty aware of, you know, how people behave. Mm. Well, it's interesting that that press release makes such an emphasis on how previously they were in charge of our culinary direction, sort of saying, oh, right. they were in the kitchen. They were not, um, you know, in the office. And I think that's the the needle that they're trying to trying to thread. Uh, John Besh, uh, his restaurant group is rebranding, changing its name, and now has a female CEO and a female executive chef for all the restaurants, which was not the case a month ago. So does being a female mean that you're going to run an organization where this doesn't happen? I mean, to a certain extent, it is window dressing. To a certain extent, it is necessary. I mean, if they put only white men in to solve the problem, the optics of that would really be terrible. So I understand that they can't do it, but it does emphasize something that is problematic. You know, that is certainly something that across industries is a huge part of the problem. Yeah, I'm not sure that having a female Mm -hmm. in charge ultimately changes all of the levels of management structure between the person who is showing up for their shift in the morning and the you know the the company's official line on workplace safety after i left montrachet as a, as a line cook i ended up at union pacific the chef rocco despirito was still the chef and it was a three-star restaurant and when i got there again luckily there was one other female in the kitchen for a long time it was just the two of us um and it, all of the sous chefs were men rocco obviously was a man our gm was a man the other GM who came later was a man. Even the pastry chef was Sam Mason, a man. And at the beginning, it was um, it was just a thing that we we would stand there and roll our eyes and sort of endure like the kind of banter that happens when you're waiting for tables, you know, and a lot of inappropriate jokes, a lot of inappropriate sexual comments. And I remember one especially just like, you know, who knows, but our sous chef was telling some just disgusting joke with like a really gross punchline. And then we had this position in the kitchen where we worked the past. So the as the plates are being finalized and assembled and the veg cook is but the veg and the meat cook is but the meat, and then it would come up to us for the final saucing and garnish and we would send the plates so sort of turn around and hand the plates to the sous chef and so we were right in his face all night and there was one day where he's just t- telling like an especially you know gross joke who knows and we just would stand there and kind of look at him like dead eyes you know and and then it was like oh you guys <laughs> you have no sense of humor blah, blah, blah. and a few months later I actually moved out of my line cook position and became kitchen manager and in that role all of a sudden if if people you know um, went home from work and didn't show up ever again the next day finding their replacement was my was my job I remember sort of saying to myself like I'm gonna hire more women like I am gonna make a point of hiring women to work here and and then that happened then all of a sudden we almost had parity in the kitchen it was almost 50 50 in like a pretty short amount of time and and sort of flash forward to one of those nights where again, I was like covering the line, covering the past because somebody was out. And I remember that same sous chef 
telling another same gross story. He looked out and half of the faces looking back at him were female faces. And he looked and kind of read the crowd. And I remember it so clearly. And he was like, uh, never mind. Never mind. And that was the moment where I was like, right, you can't, it doesn't feel good anymore. You, you don't feel safe anymore. I think what that story says to me is that when people behave that way, they know they're behaving badly. Right. It's just that they are so used to being comfortable behaving badly. But then there was that turn of the tide where then he became uncomfortable behaving badly and he stopped. There's a complicitness in laughing at that joke, right? right? It makes it it makes it okay. It reinforces like, yes, you have told funny joke. We all know that by kind of shuffling the deck chairs a little bit is not really going to solve the problem in a meaningful way. I think probably everybody really knows that. I think there's also been an assumption in a lot of the coverage that the female employees were bothered by this behavior, but it doesn't bother men because men are men. And I'm the mother of two mm-hmm. boys. They marched with me in the women's march, you know, and, um, and you know, I'm married to a man who also, like, thinks that this kind of behavior is not appropriate. But there's kind of this, like, unspoken assumption that all of the guys thought it was okay and the women are the ones who didn't. Um, and I think that that's also just not safe ground mm-hmm. to stand on. Like mm-hmm. why, why do the male managers think that the behavior of the male owner or the male chef is okay? And why should we assume that they, that it didn't bother them too? Well, mm-hmm. I don't think they really think it's okay. I think mm-hmm. they think that they want to keep their job. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's very clear that tolerating that is the price of admission in many of these jobs. And at a place like the Spotted Pig, which, and that's one of the reasons we focused on it, is because it's so aspirational. It has a Michelin star. It's a place that, you know, someone would dream of working. And yet, even under those circumstances, its ability to sort of model good behavior for the restaurant industry was hopelessly compromised really just by one man who ruled autocratically. Yes, it is true that that April was his partner, theoretically. However, it is also very clear um, from the structure of the business, essentially there really was no structure for the business. Mm-hmm. There was no reporting system. There was like an employee manual of which there was one copy in the office and in order to go to the office you had to go up to the third floor where people might be having sex at four o'clock in the, uh, the, morning the famous rape room or four o'clock in the afternoon right um in any case uh you know it's not so much that it's the um the enormous power it's the lack of structure that goes up to that powerful individual where there's really no recourse or they might get fired when you're essentially having to complain about the person to the person, that's a big problem. And in any case, in a situation like a restaurant kitchen or like a police squad, you know, being the snitch is the end. No, it's not good. And that's why I think people just leave and get a different job rather than And that's one of the main reasons that, you know, there are so few women in the restaurant industry. Mm-hmm. I really believe that, having now spoken to so many women who've worked at everything from Applebee's to the French Laundry. Right. But here's a woman in the restaurant industry sitting right next to us. So, <laughs> Genevieve, <laughs> I'm really curious 
about conversations that you have with your chef, Tom, and the culture that he is fostering in Mm -hmm. the kitchen. Mm -hmm. So when people come from other restaurants, and now I'm sure like a lot of people want to work at Bad Saint because you're a hot 10 restaurant and a lot of acclaim and people come in and they've worked in other other restaurants. When people come in with that baggage of like, I'm this kind of cook in a, that's like my dude voice. How does he create that restaurant culture in the kitchen that you are exuding in the front of house? Well. I'm glad that you brought Tom up again because I'm here talking with you all, but the environment that we are trying to create at Bad Saint would really be impossible without Tom and without Nick and really without every single employee that we have. As a guest in the dining room from almost every spot, you could see us polishing glasses. Like you can see us taking plates back to the dish pit. Like you can see chef finishing the plates and wiping them. Like you could see everything. Um, In terms of how does chef send that message I know it can it might come across as sounding sounding very Pollyanna-ish, but I see it really more as just like how we function as a restaurant. Like our front and back of the house are so closely integrated, and part of it is because literally the physical house is so small. Mm-hmm. But it's also how we do our style of service and how we work together and how we collaborate. And so when people come in to stage, I mean it's sort of like like a parallel to other environments in that like I think restaurant people. Um, are so their intuition is turned way up Mm -hmm. because you you do so much of your job by reading teeny tiny clues Mm -hmm. whether you're in the front or the back right like you can tell if a steak is cooked by how it sounds on a cast iron skillet I mean I can tell if someone has a dietary restriction that they don't want to tell me about if like a muscle in their face twitches when I ask like there's just like all these little things that give you information and you're so used to having such a sensitive radar Mm -hmm. and I think it's true when you come into a restaurant and you're staging there maybe nobody says anything to you explicitly but you find out everything you really need to know just by observing right I like to think that there's a parallel of that when people come into the restaurant when they're staging in the back of the house or with doing a front of the house trail by how we treat each other. Mm-hmm. Like for me, I really try to have our hospitality start with how we treat each other mm-hmm. as a staff, mm-hmm. as colleagues. That's and very peers. Danny Meyer. Yeah, I, yeah. And, I, and I just feel like it's something that, that shines through whether you want it to or not. It just, it's just the starting point. It's the starting point for everything. So I think what you're, I mean, what you're describing is a culture of mutual respect Mm -hmm. um, that goes for everyone from the lowest paid position to the top, um, which it it doesn't sound Pollyanna at all. It sounds like that kind of basic right and wrong and treating people with respect and I would say you can pick up on it when you're in the room. I think what Genevieve was talking about is something that is characteristic in the restaurant industry and in many which is that there needs to be a a very strong bond among the Mm -hmm. people who work there Mm -hmm. and traditionally that has been generated by shared suffering Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you know uh, shared profanity right. and we've nasty been through jokes, war together. Yeah. Shared sexism, right. absolutely. And you know, we cannot forget that the traditional French system is, in fact, based on a military mm-hmm. hierarchy, and it's called the brigade for a reason. And the chef is the chef and the general. And there's you know nothing else. There's no recourse. Right. So you know that is loosening for sure. But that is 
how it has been, um, especially in high-end restaurants. However, I certainly see in my you know 20 years of covering the industry that um, chefs, male, female, gay, straight, color, not color, a much higher level of awareness mm-hmm. of, of workplace issues, of feminism, of sexism. Because there was a time not so long ago uh, when being a chef was not a prestigious right. profession. It was not a career. It was a job. A lot of the chefs that I used to interview had never finished high school, and they learned to cook in the Navy. Um, and so as their, as food culture overall has become much more in tune with you know, cultural issues, which mm-hmm. is a very new thing, I think that that is part of the food revolution that we're seeing now at places like Bad Saint. Yeah. And maybe even at uh, Pizzaiolo in Oakland, right. where the owner has recently been revealed to be a serial sexual harasser, and they are crusading uh, for him to turn the restaurant over to them mm-hmm. to run it as a co-op. Mm-hmm. And he has, they and they have hired a restorative justice expert in order to navigate this situation. Amazing. Now, that is in Oakland. Right. Right. <laughs> that is not all of America. But these things are happening. Yeah, I'm hopeful. I don't know. There's so many topics that we didn't even get into um, on this subject. So many questions for me about how to reconcile bad deeds with um, a work a chef's work that you love like what do I do with my Mario books now like there's like this um, fatigue and sadness over sort of like fallen heroes and as restaurant guests we make we make a lot of choices um, too on the restaurants that we want to support and the kinds of treatment that we want for people who work in them from minimum wage you know increases on the national level to you know, not wanting to see someone get berated when you're sitting in an open kitchen. There is a debate now, of course, on, you know, whether we should boycott these restaurants. Right. And, of course, it has partly to do with the fact that um, someone like Ken Friedman, someone like John Besh, you know, they cannot be fired. Right. They are business owners. And, you know, they can put as many women and uh, as, as many layers of management as they want, but... I don't think it's possible for him not to profit. Right. So that's, of course, troubling to many people. But then again, if we don't go to the restaurants, the servers lose their jobs. Right. That's not good. Yeah. Yeah, it's tricky. Yeah. It's it's a reckoning. All right. Next time. We'll get (laughs) the reckoning, (laughs) the reckoning, the respect at justice and the reckoning. Um, Thank you guys so much for being here and speaking openly about this. And uh, it's great. So much to think about. Thank Thanks you. for the conversation. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and produced and edited by Emma Wartzman. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Grady's with additional music by Nathaniel Wartzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.